0: Fiction is is powerful because it it, it makes us escape immediate surroundings and places us in another place. But what happens when we do that is the important parts of our character we take with us, you know? So it's not like when you go, you know, if, if I go to a fictional place, I'm not sitting there thinking about, oh, cool, you know, I'll take my shoes with me. I'll take the car that I like with me or whatever. You know, I'm not thinking about that stuff. I'm taking the fundamentals of my humanity with me, my sense of fear, my sense of heroism, my hope for comfort and fear of loneliness and all all, the real stuff that's at the bottom of who I am.
1: If you say...
0: Midlife is the best time to start a new role-playing thing. And you need a rescue. Chase coming at you with a rescue. A role-play rescue. Chase going to help my friend. Let's sit down to game again. Rescue.
1: My name is Chay Webster. And this is Roleplay Rescue. Hello Rescuers, and a big welcome to any first-time listeners. Roleplay Rescue is primarily about encouraging the lapsed role-playing game enthusiast, those of us who perhaps played Dungeons & Dragons sometime in the past, encouraging those people to come back to the gaming table. Today, however, my guest is not a gamer. Although, as you'll hear, he has dabbled in the dark arts of fantastic gaming, my guest is a master of all things macabre and of horror. This episode crosses a divide which I have always felt is a false one, the division between fiction and reality, between movies and the creativity of imaginative games. Massive thank you up front to my guest and also to my wife Deborah for suggesting that we connect. I hope that you'll find the discussion interesting and worthy of your time. Fair warning though, we do touch on some dark places and don't shy away from some difficult questions. This is Season 7, Episode 13. Wow, that's an unintended shock for the triskodecophobic among us. Season 7, Episode 13 Satanic Panic with Peter Laws. <music> Peter Laws is an ordained minister with a fascination for the macabre, an author, journalist, film critic, public speaker and regular writer for 14 times. He's the creator of the Matt Hunter novel series and the host of the Creepy Cove Community Church podcast, an immersive horror-themed church service broadcast from the mysterious fishing village of Creepy Cove. Besides from horror, Peter is said to hail from somewhere down south and enjoys retro TV and, I am told, Krispy Kreme donuts. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thanks for joining
0: us. Hello. How hey, you've done your research, haven't you? I really do like Krispy Kreme donuts. In fact, we uh, it was my uh, we had a birthday recently in our house, and so for breakfast it's a tradition to have like a pile, a massive pile of those things.
1: Yeah, deb and I um, the only reason we go to Meadowhall, which is just up the road from us in Nottingham, oh, yeah. um, is pretty much to go and buy you know the dozen. Absolutely. You know that that's the thing to do. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Anyway, thanks so much for coming on. It's it's great to have you here
0: thanks for having me if I if I could
1: I'd start kind of right back at the beginning really because uh, I mean the main you know the main sort of theme I guess for our conversation is gonna be horror so how did you get into horror
0: um well it's interesting because in, in, in a sense I never got into it I almost was just like from birth <laughs> from, was, <laughs> was fascinated by this stuff but I, I can particularly trace it back to um having experiences in my my library uh, and also the the video shops of just kind of encountering books about the unexplained and the paranormal and ghosts and things, and then also novels about that subject and monsters yeah. and killers and stuff. And I'm um, and also seeing the kind of the garish and shocking covers of videos in, in video shops. I'm, I'm of an age where when I was about eight or nine, it was going through the kind of video nasties craze. And mm-hmm. just and seeing those sorts of posters, um, you know, cannibal Holocaust and all this sort of stuff was both was both terrifying in one sense, but they were really quite. They they did something to me. They they, they intrigued me. They, I I wanted to see more. So, I think from an early age, I'd been fascinated with strange stuff. But yeah, it probably solidified um, around kind of eight and nine.
1: Right. Okay. So it's about the time when I was starting to get into role playing games. About you know, right. Yeah. Eight or nine years yeah, old. Yeah, and it's
0: interesting that that like I think those years can be very formative uh, for yeah. us, and that. You know, as we're older, I mean, I'm in my kind of late 40s now, um, Mm. in some sense, when I go back to the things that I loved as a a young kid, it's surprising how much sort of comfort they can bring to me, that they're kind of centering experience. And so, you know, some people can look at me a little bit strange when I say, when I watch a horror film or I read a horror novel or whatever, as as shocking as those things can be, um, sometimes I find them quite comforting and calming. Because I think yeah. I am kind of reversing back to a, a pre-stress time. <laughs> you know <laughs> what I
1: mean. So did did you start with literature or movie, or was that sort of synchronous?
0: I think it was probably synchronous. Although I mean, movies were the, the main diet simply because I I wasn't a particularly a fast reader, um, and so I did I did read uh, uh, quite quite a lot as a kid, but 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 films were really the the ones that i i devoured particularly because of vhs you know and so how easy it was to access that stuff and and to be fair the the people back then were not particularly following the rules in terms of age groups and so and restrictions so i'd honestly i'd walk into the video shop and the guy would be like hey peter i've got this uh got this got this film where pig <laughs> kill someone it's called evil speak do you want to say it and i'm like yeah go on then and i'm like maybe 10 or something at the time yeah. so uh you know some people would say that was was dodgy but it well it hasn't changed me too much no i mean it's, it's kind of interesting because i remember when i i'm uh, now
1: I'm a teacher about um, oh. 10 12 years ago I, I started training and i was working i mean i'm a religious studies teacher and i was working oh, okay. with a, a colleague being trained and um, i remember him sort of really laying into some kid about how this kid had been watching some film that was like, you know, over the, um, the recommended age or whatever. And yeah. and it's a sort of early, I don't know, a reminder for me of this, uh, actually a lot of people have towards how the screen is somehow dangerous. Um, and I remember him yeah. saying to this kid, you know, um, you know, you can't unsee it once you've seen it, which uh-huh. I kind of guess is true, but I don't know what it is. There's a real, I don't know, fear of, you know, this this industry um that i've never fully understood
0: yeah and and it's linked to the technology as well so uh i mean horror films obviously had always been with us but uh you'd go Mm. to the cinema you might see a film even a graphic film like the texas chainsaw massacre but most people would go to the cinema and see that once and then leave and not see Mm. it again until it came out of the cinema once more whereas when uh vhs and betamax came in in the 1980s the technology was such that it meant people could stay at home and watch these things and watch them repeatedly and 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 only perhaps watch and rewind and watch again the most horrific parts of that and so at the time when i mean people always kind of freak out at the idea of new technology they the worry was that um this watching of the same scene over and over again could program people into uh, into killers. I mean, that's not necessarily what I believe happens at all. But mm. you can understand when a new technology comes out, people are jumpy because they don't know what it's going to do to the brain. And around the same time, of course, video games were uh, were starting to you know kind of ca- catch hold. And uh, even with video games, they were saying um, in some arcade games. Saying that these games could potentially warp and uh, and and twist twist minds, and then role playing games, of course, uh, came in, hmm. and they were similarly seen as kind of doorways to depravity. So it's uh, it's always interesting when something new comes into culture. There is there is a a, a a worry about it, a fear that it's going to corrupt, particularly the young.
1: Yeah, one of the um, fun little facts that I found out a few years ago. Every time I'm teaching about. Um, sort of this sort of topic, uh, we come around to this kind of like, you know, how culture is somehow corrupting the young. Uh There's a fantastic quotation from the 12th century about when, you know, books um, yeah. and theater and yeah. um, other stuff like that. And you could quote, I can't do off the top of my head, but you could quote them now and they would sound almost identical to, you know, the kinds of complaints we hear today about new technology. It's really interesting.
0: No, it is. It, and it's because this like repeat, and I, I just watched a, a film on uh, Netflix, which is called The Social Dilemma, which is talking about how the, the dangers of social media and, and the way that comes across, even though that that... Mm. That film makes some interesting points. It could also be accused of being really kind of hysterical in terms of thinking that social media is basically going to be the downfall of humanity. And mm-hmm. it, uh, it does echo, yes, what you've just said and what was said about VHS and all these other things. <laughs> um, you know, things just need a little time to settle in. And then we we realize what the power of these things are. And I mean, there are risks, of course, with certain things, with social media, particularly but um, I'm always cautious uh, when people start kind of raising the alarm when a new bit of technology enters the the space and people think it's going to be basically like the end of the world. Yeah, it's interesting, really.
1: Um, and of course, yeah, I do want to get on to talking a little bit about that 80s satanic panic stuff, um, which is, I think for me, the sort of focus of uh, what I wanted to chat to you about. Sure. Before we go there though cuz rumor has it that you've played Cool Cthulhu back in the day. Is this true?
0: Yeah, I did. Yeah. Um me and my uh my my friends uh when we were teenagers we I think we got we got into that because for a little while we we did these um you know these murder mystery night things that you can get and yeah, yeah. you buy them in charity shops and stuff and we we got one of those just for a laugh we thought we'd do one. Um and it was it was quite fun and then around the time i think uh so one of my friends discovered this call of cthulhu game and so we started to to play that and um mm. that actually was what introduced me to hp lovecraft i've i've been a kind of lifelong fan of lovecraft since then but it was the game which introduced me uh to him properly mm. uh and i i just found the whole, i mean really in the ess- in, in the essence of role playing i i found I'm not a big kind of role play person in terms of like classic gaming, but the yeah. concept of role playing, I, I, I just, I really love that idea of, I was quite happy to become who the character was, you know? Yeah. And as we played the game, I was very happy to kind of suspend disbelief and, and and feel like we're actually going through these experiences. It just makes it interesting and fun. And I know that I would, I would be, it would be my job to um, compile the soundtrack to the gaming nights. And so uh I I had a big collection of of horror vinyl and stuff like that. So I would put together <laughs> some like really spooky and scary stuff. And um yeah, I remember that really well. I also remember actually thinking back to it in I think it was like uh not sixth form, I think like year three or four or something. There was some sort of like business project that was on at our, ch- at our at our school which was trying to come up with ways of making money and um a few people decided they would do a like a live action role playing company oh, and right. um and so i do remember a very vividly an afternoon where the entire class and the teachers had to go down into the woods and start getting dressed up as vampires, <laughs> vampires and, <laughs> and being given you know all of these sort of uh um like like latex swords and fighting and yeah. stuff and and that was my first first introduction to role playing that actually was out and about, you know, and on yeah. location. So it was, yeah, it was fun. I mean,
1: uh, in our email back and forth, you mentioned there was a night, I guess, much later, when you were chased by zombies in a nuclear bunker in Essex. So yeah. Are these in any way connected?
0: Well, um, yeah. That, I mean, that was an amazing experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In some ways, they were. Um, yeah. I I wrote a book called The Frighteners. Normally, I write uh, fiction, but I wrote another book called uh, The Frighteners, Why We Love Monsters, Ghosts, Death, and Gore. Hmm. And um, that book was really to try and answer the question, um, that people keep asking me not only why do does anyone like horror films but particularly for me and my background being uh, also an ordained church minister people find it very weird to think that i should also love vampires and monsters and demons and stuff <laughs> and so i wrote this book yeah uh, to answer that question and it was a kind of globe trotting book where i got to go to transylvania and rome and across britain trying okay. to answer the question you know of why yeah. morbid culture is valuable and and i wanted to have uh, experiences not just write a kind of dry textbook and so yeah as part of that I went hunting for a werewolf in Hull I um the BBC blind drove me to no, in the middle of nowhere where I didn't know where I was and <laughs> um put me in a mansion overnight where they kind of electrocuted me and um made me walk on fire and threw spiders on me while I was eating dinner and stuff like it's all this crazy stuff for a, for a show mm. and then yes and also I went to Kelvin Hatch nuclear bunker, yeah. And uh, in the underground bunker part, you there's there's this kind of role play type night where you have to find attache cases with syringes in them while being chased by zombies. And I'm telling you, Che, it, it was like <laughs> it was it was so exhilarating, particularly the last moment when the the entire um, the entire facility, which is an actual um, it's an actual nuclear bunker. And hmm. it's a place where devolved government would have happened in the eighties if uh, if there'd been a nuclear strike. And yeah. running through that place, being chased by these screaming zombies, me with 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 guns, <laughs> it was it was so exhilarating. It was one of my favorite things ever. And again, it's like like playing a role. I had no issue with saying no. I'm on board with this. You know, I'm totally in it. And when I've done like murder mystery nights as well since then like I'm not messing around. Like when I turn up, I'm like talking in a weird <laughs> accent and I'm just going for it. Cause it's, I don't know. There's something I think quite therapeutic and, and quite, quite kind of wonderful about just being someone else for a bit. Um mm. Because in a, in a sense, you're not being someone completely different. You're being, you're being like an expression of your character in a different way. You know, you're mm. like, so if I'm playing a kind of, if I went to some murder thing and I had to play like a devious person, I'm, I'm exploring what it would be like for me to be devious in real life, you know, or, or a hero. So yeah, it's, uh, it's all very life-giving I think this sort of stuff
1: yeah i mean i'm i remember um reading quite a bit of psychology around this as well actually and about uh-huh. the idea that i mean one of the things that the games do and i guess um in a lot of ways we do this when we watch a movie or or you know even when we read in the book as well is there's sort of these rituals attached to go- entering into these imaginary worlds so we're role playing games you know our friends gather and often there's a few oh. drinks and we gather our dice and we you know we, and and there's that time of conversation and then there's someone will pull it together and almost the invocation of the whole kind of yeah. you know the event and it's the same with watching a movie isn't it you know you're grabbing the i don't know grabbing a drink and a popcorn or whatever you yeah know, you're going into that space together and you're kind of settling down and the lights darken and you know that and, and okay. even with a book i find you know it's a similar thing isn't it you kind of snuggle up and you know you get a good get a good tail going. maybe a drink on the side drink comes up a yeah. lot doesn't it yeah yeah it does <laughs> well it's, it's but, essential for some things but I don't know what you make of that. But um, you know, my impression was that uh, when you wrote your the book you thought about it, the Frighteners, that that was something that you sort of touched on.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you're dead right about this idea of kind of kind of ritual, uh, and particularly when it comes to to films and books, there is a ritualistic aspect to the stories themselves. Uh, horror mm. is often well it's described as a genre because in a sense it's generic uh mm. you know like the, i can't i can't tell you how many films i've watched in which a car breaks down on a stormy night and the people <laughs> have to find refuge in a local spooky house and in some sense you could say i i couldn't watch that film over and over again but i could and millions of people can and and it's yeah. the same story you know where it's going you know what's going to happen you know like someone's going to die at some point and yes, it, it is like a kind of repetitive ritual, um, going through the motions, but there's something meaningful about it. There's something, there's something powerful about that. You mm-hmm. see the same kind of, well, I mean, in, 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 the church, I suppose they might call it liturgy, you know, when, um, mm-hmm. you know, all, all churches tend to have some sort of pattern to them when you sit down and there's a, yep. there's a song here and there's a hymn there and there's a sermon there. Um, and we, we we uh we like to have kind of I suppose a framework in which to explore profound ideas, because mm. to not have any framework can be quite disconcerting. You know we have to have some framework, and so these stories, religious rituals, uh, books they just they provide a, a a kind of arena in which we can go. Okay, right, I know where I am, I know where I'm going, and along the way you can have some quite profound experiences.
1: Why did you start Creepy Cove Community Church, Peter?
0: <laughs> well, Creepy Cove was interesting because it, that, that idea came up during the beginning of the lockdown for the kind of global pandemic. And mm. I, just, I just had a new book come out um, about demonic possession, uh, a novel. And yeah. uh, as that book came out, I was thinking of what to do next. And I, I wasn't necessarily ready to rush straight into write a new book. Um, and as I was thinking about it, it was interesting because around the time loads of churches were not meeting anymore. Well, they couldn't mm. meet anymore, which is fair enough. And what was happening instead was, uh, churches were providing their services via the internet. And so I would sit down and I'd, I'd attend the church I normally attend. Um, I, I would sit down and I'd watch this through the TV, sitting in my pajamas, eating, you know, eating my cereal. It was like, wow, this, this is, this is great <laughs> you know, I could get used to this version of church um but what i what I did find was I thought you know what i'm I'm still having quite a meaningful experience mm. sitting here, and i thought why 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 does this only have to be for for me you know um and also church is weird, you know church kind of puts people off and and people have issues with church, and I can totally understand them i I think if people were to meet me, some christians think i'm i 'm a raging dodgy Christian because I have some <laughs> pretty kind of relaxed beliefs about, about spirituality. But I do, I just do find it personally a, a very helpful force in my life. And so I was just thinking, well, I, I get encouraged by this stuff, but I also like horror. And, and I thought, well, you know, is there any reason why you couldn't like set up a fictional church? Because nobody has to actually come to it. Cause I've, I've seen that you can attend church at home. What happens if you set up a church that appeals to the type of stuff I'm into. And so I just was sitting there thinking, well, you know, it'd be cool if you had to go to, if, if you got to go to a, a church on a windswept peak that overlooked a creepy fishing town, and particularly where all horror movies really happened. Um, mm-hmm. I, I like that idea because I like the idea of kind of whenever anyone writes a horror film um, or, or a book, it populates Creepy Cove with new people. And there's this kind of, ongoing development of the community because new horror brings in new people um yeah. but also that i thought well and this is what happens in the services the church services that come out via podcast horror people turn up you know there's uh danny from the shining turned up the other day at one of the services um seth brundle from the fly david cronenberg's the fly was, was in the service on Saturday, just gone. I'm talking about how he was turning into a fly and, you know, (laughs) like it's all like tongue in cheek in one sense, but it's also, it was also trying to encourage people and to help people who were facing their own physical difficulties and illnesses. And Mm so I thought, you know what, this, this could work. And so I decided, well, look, some churches you can go to and they'll provide their service on, they used to provide them on cassette for people at home who couldn't get there but now they do it on the internet. And I thought, well, just make a, make it up, you know, make a whole <laughs> service. That sounds like you're in, in church that's got thunder and lightning and people talking and people clapping and, and laughing, you know, like a crowd. And, um, and so the services of creepy cove, they really are like a church service. There's notices and there's prayers and meditations. There's weird Gothic hymns and um, there's a sermon. I, I'm there as myself, you know, as the minister of this weird church, but it's, um, it's pretty wacky, but I'm so delighted that people seem to be responding to it. And interestingly, you know, you're talking about role-playing, there is an essence of role-play in this because the way people interact with this show and talk to me about it, they, they're quite happy to suspend disbelief and act like they attend this church, even though we know we don't, because it's not real. Yeah. A, an example of this, and I, I found this quite profound, was uh, in the first episode. At the beginning of the church service, we had uh, Carrie White from the Stephen King film and, and novel. Yeah. She turned up because she was all excited about having um, having an opportunity to go to the school prom that fo- that following weekend, and so she was there and she chatted a little bit in the service. This is like dialogue from the film. Yeah. And uh, and then I said, oh well, we're going to have like a live live tweeting from Carrie White in the church office. She's going to pop in the church office on Friday and get (laughs) on Twitter or Facebook and you can ask your questions. And everyone knows that's not real. I know it's not real. (laughs) But on that Friday, I sat down and I pretended to be Carrie White at the other end and people were talking to me, um, giving me giving Carrie advice about the prom. But then it got quite profound because Carrie was on about how she gets bullied at school and that it really gets her down. And then people were talking to her how, to her about how they were bullied. At one point, someone tweeted, I can't believe I'm sitting here in tears because I'm sharing my bullying stories with Carrie White, which of course is not real. But that's my point. You know, like these things yeah. may not be real, but they're they're still real in the sense that they touch, they touch deep feelings. And so for me, Creepy Cove has been a a pretty kind of bizarre and yet very rewarding experience and so it continues and i'm delighted to see more people attend this uh, creepy church on the peak
1: yeah i got my curiosity because oh uh, as you all know but the listeners don't my wife deborah attends your church which yes. is um is fantastic. it's fantastic and wonderful. it it's an amazing thing because you know her and mine uh contact with church over the years is shall we say not always been great um yeah um but interestingly she started listening to Creeper Cove and yeah is attending and and it's a it's a regular thing it's like fortnightly yeah
0: yeah really and
1: you. you know what it makes her Sunday and um oh. so you know just thanks for that but the thing is about it is that yeah you're right she suspends disbelief and enters that and enjoys that and it's it's quite um it's quite you know deep to watch really it's great
0: yeah in in a sense I think I think it is um and it makes me wonder if like other people could potentially set up churches that are are based around you know science fiction or based around other like niche niche topics I think one of the things that is is a relief to me though is that people who come along to it I start to realize fairly soon that it's not what they might expect because they might expect, and this is what I would have thought because I grew up um, being very anti-church until my early 20s. So I assumed that all Christians were basically just out on a spiritual scalp hunt and they couldn't care less (laughs) about me. They just wanted to convert me into their weirdo cult. And I've always been suspicious about that. And and, and so I'm not the type of Christian who's like, yeah, let's put on this kind of, spooky church idea because that's what the kids are into <laughs> and then yeah. and then we'll convert them to christianity uh that's not that's just not the ethos or what it's about and it's designed for people who are of faith of no faith um and uh you know thankfully a lot of the people who like this show say you I know mean, i'm a total atheist i don't believe in this stuff but i still find it you know an encouragement to be to attend so yeah it's
1: cool. mm. i wonder if it's you know that idea of of church um that you know originally that was a binding of the community wasn't it it was a bringing of people yeah. together you know and um that is certainly something i feel uh, you know i felt throughout my life has kind of changed in our culture we've moved away from the religious route i guess uh-huh. um but along with that we have kind of lost some of that connection And um, I find it interesting that through sort of social media, through, you know, the podcast that even the one I have, you know, there's a real community that's sort of grown up around different ideas and, you know, different people come together and we're hungry for it, I think.
0: Absolutely. And and I think for me, I'm, I'm of the opinion, you know, if God exists and of course it's possibly might not, but if he does, uh, I tend to find that, um, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not a believer in the idea that, uh, God only would operate in Christian circles, you know, um, yeah. or that he has this sort of ghettoized experience, but rather that, uh, th- therefore spirituality would be spreaded throughout the world, throughout the universe, throughout the cosmos, and therefore throughout culture. So for me, I find like, you know, even people, you know, doing role-playing that has nothing to do with obvious faith, um, or people listening to your podcast and that sense of community, there's no reason why I can't see that as a potential sort of spiritual experience. Or of course, if God doesn't exist, it's just a valuable connection with other human beings. Either way, it's positive. So um, Mm. now I'm a big believer in that, particularly as we, As we grow as a culture, you know, increasingly um, antagonistic towards one another and and pushing one another away, I'm kind of keen on providing safe spaces for people to be themselves, but to be together as well.
1: Yeah, that's really encouraging because, you know, it doesn't feel safe out there Um, a lot of the time. You know, there's an awful lot of, um, yeah, just that, what they call it, the culture wars or whatever. Just terrifying.
0: Yeah and and um and sadly so much of it uh you know at the moment at least when I I follow what's going on particularly in America and the kind of anti-maskers anti-vaxxers and the mm. kind of the Trump and Biden um electoral race and the the, the kind of almost like civil war <laughs> type things are going on it's it's pretty disheartening for me to see how so many of the most vociferous and cruel voices can also um claim to be Christians you know and uh mm. And I think, wow, you don't look a great deal like Jesus, but, you know, I don't want to judge these people, but it's, it's, it's just a bit disheartening. Uh, and so Mm. I'm not surprised that some people will find me suspicious because the second you hear like a word (laughs) reverend or something, you're like, oh, crude. You, you assume that all this guy's anti-science, anti-evolution, anti-gay marriage and, you know, anti-everything. Um, Mm. and maybe they get surprised when they find that I'm fairly relaxed.
1: You touched on this, but um what's it actually like to sort of take on those characters from horror movies and try and bring them to life in the podcast
0: <laughs> well it's it's kind of it's kind of weird because i mean i'm i'm not an actor right uh right. i'm i am i am pretty crappy at acting however um i I realized that this podcast is not just going it's not going to work if I just kind of just speak um and yeah. then it's also not going to work if I do all the same voice and accent, so I realized that you know there's characters in in the show. And, um, I had to voice them. And so I had to start putting voices on, but for the actual horror characters that come in, um, for example, there's a film called Midsummer, uh, an Ari Aster film, which is a really interesting horror film. And, uh, the, the woman from that Danny Arda w- turned up at the church a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, for those sorts of things, I do use tiny little clips, uh, from the film. And then I kind of, Cleverly, <laughs> he says, into it, like try and formulate a conversation around it. So little snippets of dialogue I will repurpose for a conversation, usually for comedy purposes, and it's it's like parody, you know. I've, it's like that's like the copyright uh, side of it. It's 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 just not yeah. taken at all, but it's it's repurposing it. Um, and so I do it that way. But yes, for other characters, I had to do voices, which is is weird, but that's just something was easy because I was like, well, it's locked down. I'm not going to be able to get people to come over. Like you can't guarantee everyone's got a good microphone, so I can't get them to do. It. And also it's just quicker. And do you pay people to do voices? So I just started doing them myself, but an, an example would be Jay. Um, like uh, it also, I also have a Patreon program, um, which is related to it, which has a whole bunch of extra kind of members only exclusive audio things. And so mm-hmm. I just brought out, <laughs> this is crazy. I just brought out for that, um, jogging with Jason, which is a fitness program, a 30 minute fitness run, um, where Jason Voorhees from the Friday the 13th movies is basically like the church's fitness guru. And he, <laughs> he runs, a, runs there jogging with Jason on a Tuesday and then sprinting with Jason on a Thursday. And, um, and so I'm like, well, Jason's never spoken. So what sort of voice is Jason going to have? And so, cause it, there's a lot of comedy and he's got a kind of comedy voice. But but that's thirty minutes of a of a proper run. You're supposed to go on a run. It's timed. I, I went with my son yesterday on it just to test it all out. And yep. um yeah, it's Jason chatting, telling you about his story and then killing a few people along the way. <laughs> so but so it's 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 a bit bit wild, but it's um it's fun. And and I like music as well and I, it's been a while since I've been able to do sort of creative stuff with music. I used to be in bands and things. So it's been mm-hmm. fun to um suddenly have to start writing horror hymns and weird songs about uh about all sorts of like kind of creepy subjects to put into the services. So yeah, it's great. Sounds fab. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about
1: your February cover article from 14 Times. was uh, oh, yes. this terrifying world of Jack Chick. Yeah, uh, it seems to segue nicely from our earlier conversation. Mm. Um, so, why did you choose to tackle that particular story, Jack well, Chick?
0: Well, Jack Chick. I mean, not, in in Britain, maybe not as many people are familiar with him, although people have encountered him. But in in the US, particularly, he is uh, he's he's fairly well known because he was in. He's not he's not alive anymore, but he, for decades, had been a man who was a like a Christian cartoonist, like an evangelist, yeah. who was behind these things called chick tracts, which are these tiny little kind of pamphlets that would have these quite, quite shock, well, very shocking um, cartoons in them, which yeah. would, well, the aim of them was to terrify people into the risks of hell. And then at the end, basically say, but you know, you can be saved, saved from hell by turning to Jesus. So it was kind of evangelism, but, uh, it was particularly popular because it gave people an opportunity to, you know, share their faith. Um, because in evangelical circles, the, it's one of the core things you should go out and share your faith. But with this, you didn't have to actually speak to anyone. You could just slip a jack chick tracked into maybe like a heavy metal album like a vinyl in in a shop or go into a book and slip it into into a library and slip it into a book and this is what starts started happening people started finding these uh, chick tracks lying around i found one before i went to church um you know early on as a teenager i found a, a one that's called that's baffer made and it was all about the freemasons and how actually this freemason guy starts joining the freemasons and it all seems very fine until um, eventually, it's revealed that he's on a fast track to worship the devil, and then he turns away and 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 this sort of stuff was just really wild. And the cartoon stuff, the comic art, is actually pretty good. It, it's 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 very vivid. It reminds you of the kind of the fifties, like EC horror comics and stuff. Yeah. So it's quite irresistible. And his stuff does have quite a following, particularly amongst people who aren't Christians. But his worldview um, was was so hardcore and he blamed the catholics particularly the jesuits for uh, for everything and he was a key um a, a key sort of fuel for the satanic panic of the mm. of the 80s and 90s and particularly with dungeons and dragons he he had um he had quite a lot of influence on the the growing hysteria around that that role playing game as well yeah. as music and and films and all that sort of stuff
1: i remember finding dark dungeons Oh, yeah. In a book. Um, And, you know, I grew up from an atheist background. You know, got into role-playing when I was about, I don't know, eight, nine, something like that. And Uh this must have been in the 80s sometime. But, um, yeah, the Dark Dungeons one, that one with Debbie. Is it Debbie the D&D? I think it's when she gets to level eight as a cleric that she's then initiated into the Witcher's Coven, if I remember correctly.
0: Yeah, because she plays, um, (laughs) I think her character is Star, And then she's got a friend called Marcy who is um, Blackleaf. Um, right. And yeah, they're, they're, they're playing uh, some sort of like dark uh, Dungeons and Dragons equivalent where there's a woman called Mrs. Frost, who's like the dungeon master. And she, um, at one point she gets uh black, I think it's, yeah, it is Blackleaf who, who yeah. stumbles into some sort of like poison trap. And so her character dies. And um, Marcy, who plays Blackleaf, she's uh, distraught by this and so distraught. In fact, that uh, a few pages in, we see her legs dangling from the ceiling because she's hung herself. You know, It's like it's basically saying, if you do this, if you get so into this, your kids are going to end up uh, committing suicide. And then, yeah, um, Debbie starts uh, discovering what Chick believed was the true face of Dungeons and Dragons when Mrs. Frost starts to say to um to her you know what you've you're pretty good at the at the fake spells in D&D and so why don't you come to my witch's coven where you'll discover how to do these spells for real yeah. and, and so behind behind chick's uh is his whole kind of ethos was that there was a satanic conspiracy going on and dungeons and dragons were was just um the perfect vehicle for that because it was children teenagers um you know taking on a role uh maybe having different genders heaven for fend, um or playing as an animal or a beast or something like that and um and having you know spells and all that's and that was just like where like radar going off like alarms going off for the evangelical community particularly for jack chick
1: yeah I, I, there's a line in it where i i think it's debbie she says like as uh, she discovered that it's more than quote just a fantasy and yeah. then she goes to use her powers to charm her dad into buying her guess what more <laughs> d&d
0: stuff oh yeah guess what like about 200 dollars worth <laughs> yeah
1: and i I'm, i honestly um i remember at the time kind of thinking crikey if i had those powers it'd be you know more than d&d stuff but um <laughs> yes i mean i remember it as a teenager uh reading that and, and on the one hand being bewildered and kind of like really um and on the other side slightly on edge and right you know, because toward the end, there's a whole bit where, you know, Debbie goes and listens to a preacher and then kind of, you know, confesses to her, yeah. you know, uh, and then kind of receives Jesus. And there's the the prayer bit at the back, isn't there, and all of these tracts about, like, yeah, know, kind, of, kind of how to become a Christian stuff. And I remember it causing that, I suppose, that kind of momentary doubt um, in my uh-huh. arrogant atheist mind. So, because I was horrendously arrogant, not that way, so. <laughs>
0: but I mean that's that's interesting you say that because um when I I wrote that article I spoke to various people and I spoke to a few people who had that experience who said that they were atheists and they continue to be so but they occasionally had this kind of quiver of doubt um to Mm -hmm. think gosh what happens if it was if it was true and um and I think it's it's understandable why people would say that because the 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 alternative that chick was presenting was so horrifying you know it was so it was like people literally getting kicked off a cliff and and tumbling into the fires of hell and uh you know just a a shocking um approach and yet it it resonated and particularly with christians who um at, at their heart at the time the evangelical church was getting so so big um particularly in the 80s uh, with the moral majority and Jerry Falwell, and and they were starting to get a lot of political clout and power with uh, Ronald Reagan being in office, and mm. and it was just it was just a time when um, there was a feeling that uh, almost like Puritanism, you know, we need to return to an old the old ways. In in some ways, that's what's happening even right now. The similar sort of thing, a, a distrust of the media and of Hollywood and a mm. feeling like we have to return to the old ways, although now it's kind of steeped in like QAnon conspiracy theories and, you know, pedophile lizards and all this sort of stuff. Mm. Whereas, um, you know, back in the 80s, I think it was a little bit more just, you know, your kid's going to turn into um, in, into a degenerate uh, or, or, or be risked. And you can, you can actually understand why some parents struggled with this because, um, you know, they weren't used to, playing games in which you played a completely different person. Mm. Um, And so they, they, they were frightened by this sadly. And there was, there were a few cases of, um, you know, people who apparently killed themselves because they were playing Dungeons and Dragons. But of course it just ended up being some people, some people sadly killed themselves. It doesn't mean that it was because they were playing Dungeons and Dragons, but people made those connections and uh, there were, popularizations of this, uh, the film Mazes and Monsters, I don't know if you've seen that from 1982 yeah. with uh, Tom Hanks, mm-hmm. that kind of brought that brought, uh, Dungeons and Dragons to a kind of a bigger audience. Although ironically, when you watch that, that, that film hasn't really got a lot of religious aspects to it. It's more about, you know, the psychological dangers of losing touch with reality, which is yeah. one thing whereas the christians were saying no actually there's there, there's that risk but for the christians they were saying but there is a genuine spiritual force which mm. is going to attack you and then of course you've got um in 1983 i think it was the dungeons and dragons cartoon which is mm. what i remember da 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 da, da. what a um, wasn't that an amazing theme tune so so melodic i, I never forgot that tune um but uh, but that that show um, I am Dungeon Master, your guide. <laughs> that, yeah. that creepy little guy. Um, that that <laughs> that brought Dungeons and Dragons. Actually, to me, I, I'd never heard of it before watching that on on TV. But mm. it brought it to the attention of the, the 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 Christian Church and the Evangelicals in particular. And they, but I mean, some of them were struggling with He-Man. Never mind uh, Dungeons yeah. and Dragons. So uh, so you could see a satanic panic starting to develop.
1: Yeah, I mean I I never fully realized especially in the states how how big this sort of wider cultural phenomenon of the satanic panic yeah. was really. For me, I mean for years I just assumed it was an attack on primarily a small scale attack on, you know, TSR's Dungeons and Dragons, you know, and role-playing mm-hmm. games as a concept, but obviously reading through some of the tracts and and the article on Jack Chick especially, you know that all so so many things that got conflated together with this kind of great conspiracy that, yeah. um, as your analysis kind of outlines, you know, this kind of broader uh, worldview that he was presenting, really, um, which is, I mean, the man must have been terrified. I would have
0: thought. <laughs> well, yes. And I, and I interviewed uh one of the guys, the the guy who runs uh the Chick Publications uh today and he's, he talked about how um they they described one of the offices that they have um where they produce these tracts the war room, because this right. was the place where they were producing um, you know, material that would help with an actual spiritual war. But also what, what can come as a surprise perhaps to some people is that Jack Chick was not just angry about non-christians as it were um Mm. or you know heavy metal and all that sort of stuff he also he one of his biggest targets was the catholic church he Mm. he believed the catholics were like the whore of babylon and he wrote many many tracts that were saying that really it's the catholics that are behind um so many of the conspiracies behind assassination attempts there's one tract in which he claims that the uh the Vatican have this supercomputer in the basement of the Vatican um, where it holds the names and addresses of every Protestant in the, in the world. And, and, <laughs> and this sort of stuff is just, I mean, it's weird because on my, you know, I, I, I don't believe this stuff, but it's also, I, I it's, it's just so interesting and crazy and wacky that I, I find it irresistible yeah. to almost enjoy, but at the same time be horrified because this is just totally prejudice and totally untrue um, so it makes for quite a quite a heady brew, but chick tracks are still going today. Um, funnily enough um they they were delighted with my article. Um, I sent them a copy and I was like, oh man I don't know if they're gonna like this because you know I really kind of lay it out how crazy some of this stuff is but I wanted to try and be journalistic about it and not just say they're baddies but present yeah. it to everyone and they they really like the article. <laughs> I thought, oh, cracky! But it's pretty clear from the article that um, some of the views are well, much of the views is is very objectionable.
1: Yeah, and they they sent you a message, didn't they? The end yeah, it?
0: they did. Yeah, yeah. Um, gave them kind of the opportunity to to share that because they don't, um, they notoriously don't often give access to some of their stuff and, and allow it to be reprinted. So I was really quite surprised when they let me let us reprint that in the 14th Times. But I tell you what, what's interesting about that is. Um, just, uh, about three weeks ago, I got, uh, a message from somebody from America and they had bought the American version of my book of the Frighteners over there. It's called the Frighteners, uh, cultural fascination with the macabre or something like that. And anyway, the hardback book, and they sent me a photograph and they said, Hey, Peter Laws, well played. This is a clever bit of marketing that you've slipped in a chick track tracked into your book. Um, and it's the, it's the chick track called hi there. And there's a, on the front there, there's a picture of the, um, the grim reaper kind of waving, saying hello. Wow. And so she thought like, this was some cool publicity stunt. And I'm like, I've been chicked, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, they've gone into a shop and somebody has said, that's the sort of book that will appeal to people who are on the slippery slope to hell. Mm. And therefore that's a strategic place in which to put a chick track and weirdly enough i was slightly disturbed by it, but mostly i was kind of yes <laughs> was, it was quite exciting and I, I shared that on social media and loads of people who aren't christians and stuff were saying oh my word you got chick that's so that's so cool so <laughs> so yeah so it's still happening today chick tracks a read the world over um but he certainly has had an influence on on um on, on christians views of yeah. of of role-playing games for for sure
1: and i'm fascinated as why as you mentioned, really, so many non Christians seem to
0: collect them. Well, I think this is the artwork is so garish and um, intense, and the the way it appra- like, and it, it's just so in your face. There's there's a, there's a one called um, Green Angels, which is a, against the kind of rock and roll industry. And in yeah. Green Angels, it's I mean that's one of my favourite ones because it's so uh, crazy. But in that, a uh, band. Kind of sell their soul to the devil, um, and the devil in it is called Lucifer, clever, right? <laughs> and um, in that they uh, basically sign this contract in blood. Their career descends into sort of tragedy, and at one point, um, there's a band member, Bobby, turns gay and wants to marry a man, which in you know Chick's view would be an abomination. And at mm-hmm. one point, like Sipher, in the comic, he says, um, "I'll give you a little wedding present: some AIDS." And it's just like, wow, (laughs) it's so garish and shocking and in your face, um, Mm. that it's actually quite appealing for people who they don't believe in this stuff. They don't agree with this stuff, but it's, it's, it's shocking. And sometimes Mm. shocking art is the sort of stuff people would have on their, on their wall. It's, it's the same principle. Like, you know, I, I like to watch horror movies, um, and people might think is that because I approve of the con the concept of killing people or something or torture or death and it's Mm. the opposite the opposite in fact I I find those topics violence and death so disturbing that I use um I use horror as a way of dealing with my fears you know of taking control Mm. of them and for some people I think they collect chick tracts because they find them so abominable but when they own them they they kind of have a control over them they have a you know, you're just a little leaflet in my drawer. You're a picture on the wall that I can enjoy or laugh at. Yeah. It's like in, in my in The Frighteners, I there's a whole chapter on the murderer billiard industry. And in that, at the beginning of that chapter, I'm holding a lock of Charles Manson's hair in my hand. Cause I was with a dealer who was selling it for forty pounds a strand. And it's the the whole chapter is about this idea of people collecting, um, Trinkets and uh, belongings and souvenirs from the world's most savage killers. It's it, it is a kind of um, a, a reasonably big market for people who like true crime. And mm. at first, it's just like wow, these guys are sickos. You know, they want to collect murder weapons. You can even like there's um there's some killers where there's places where you can buy a bag of soil. Um, from the place where a body was found, and people will buy the soil and keep it at home yeah. and on one hand, it's just like this is shocking and I interviewed a man from Houston who actually coined the term murderabilia and he he kind of leads the charge against um against this industry trying to stop it because he talks about how shocking it is for the parents of murdered children um, because they put these killers' names into google and uh, they get an alert every time they're mentioned and he says can you imagine what it's like to to get an alert to say oh someone's just paid 500 to get a postcard written by that killer because they want to connect with them so you can totally see why it's shocking and disturbing and yet in the chapter i talk about how sometimes there's a complex psychology going on where people uh like there's an artist who collects some of this stuff and he talks about how um he is sometimes terrified that he could end up doing some of the crimes that these guys do. And Mm. so he buys the stuff to have in his house and he can look at that stuff and he can go, that reminds me, I will never be, I'll never do that. So, you know what I mean? Like people stopping themselves from doing this or people even thinking it's like magical, like it's a talisman. Like if I own like a sock that belonged to Ted Bundy, somehow that will protect me. Um, from other killers. I mean, it's, it's pretty wacky stuff, but it's not just people like murder uh, and want to revel in the deaths of other people. It's, it's a bit more complex than that, but it's still shocking.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm just fascinated by, I mean, you kind of talking about Chick and you're talking about like all this kind of murderabilia stuff and all mm-hmm. that I The question that keeps rising up in my mind is, it seems to me that fiction often seems more persuasive than reality. Um, <laughs> yeah. What do you make of
0: that? thats a, I think that's a very insightful comment. I think that's, and, that, and it's, it's a bit like what we talked about before in that fiction in some ways isn't fiction. Fiction is a vehicle for our inner selves to come out into the light. Hmm. And so um, what can sometimes happen is, you know, that, there's certain things about the human condition, I think it's just too hard to express. You know, sometimes, for example, I feel down or upset about something and I can't put my finger on why, or Mm. I, sometimes I can't fully work out who I am. (laughs) I don't know if you're like this, but you know, I, I don't know why I react to certain things in certain ways, but then I start to pay attention to what happens to me when I watch a film and I go, well, what is the, what is the bits that make me cry in a film? And I'll find that they, that they're repeating the same emotion some things don't make me cry in a film you know i'm not that bothered about it but other things do and it's a way of discovering what your buttons are and i think that's because yeah fiction is is powerful because it 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 makes us escape uh immediate surroundings and places us in another place but what happens when we do that is the important parts of our character we take with us mm. you know so it's not like when you go, you know, if, if I go to a fictional place, I'm not sitting there thinking about, oh, cool. You know, I'll take my shoes with me. or I'll take the car that I like with me or whatever. You know, I'm not thinking about that stuff. I'm taking the fundamentals of my humanity with me, my mm. sense of fear, my sense of heroism, my hope for comfort and fear of loneliness and all, all the real stuff that's at the bottom of who I am. Mm. I think these things are touched upon. Through fiction and film and gaming, uh, and and that's why they're they're vital. I don't. It gets it gets a bit annoying to me when you see, particularly during this pandemic, you know, people saying, um, I mean, quite rightly, you know, nurses and doctors and stuff doing amazing work, mm. um, and, and 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 but then they'll say, but all of these artists and celebrities and and people who write books and TV shows and films, like they're nothing. they this has proved they're a waste of time. Because the real heroes are on the street. And I, I agree with that. You know, everyone has a role, but the artists have a role too. And just think about what a lifeline the arts has been actually to people during a pandemic, particularly people at home who haven't been trapped in their house and yet have been able to escape taking their inner essence with them into a whole host of fictional worlds. Um, there's something powerful about that. And that's why we keep doing it. That's why we keep telling stories and we'll continue to tell stories because I think something, something is happening when we do that. It kind of takes us to a higher level of consciousness. And you could call that religious, spiritual, psychological. I don't know what it is exactly, but mm. it's cool. And I've done it all my life and I'll continue to do it. Cause that's, I think what makes us human. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of went off on one there. <laughs> it was great.
1: Um, yeah, I just kind of left thinking about tying these strands together, really. We've, sure. we've talked about, so we talked about, um, you know, you're coming into horror. Uh-huh. We've talked about like a little bit about gaming, about Creeper Cove. Um, talked about the Satanic Panic and Jack Chick. Yeah. Um, the Frighteners. Um, and obviously you you know we haven't talked a lot about it, but your your novels as well you might have mm. the book that's the isn't that the um the minister who's kind of lost his faith who yes. is uh, helping the police with their investigations
0: yeah that's right he's um he's like an ex church minister, and um in book one called Purge, we discover why he's turned his back on faith he's got some pretty good reasons um but because he's kind of got all this expertise about theology and the Bible and stuff, he gets called in by the police to help solve religiously motivated mm. crimes. And um, there's, there's more of those than you might imagine. And, and <laughs> of, often when people think, oh, you know, really when religion is involved in, in crime, it tends to be of the kind of the international sort of terrorism variety, mm. um, which is one thing, but that's not what these books are about. These, book things, these books are about individuals who, um, who feel guided by God. Um, to do bad things, and and this is the funny thing, because you know I'm I'm a Christian and stuff, but um, sometimes people get confused because they read that book, and that book is the the main character is an atheist, and so it presents the atheist worldview as a completely legitimate worldview, because it is, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, in my mind, it, it's it's a completely rational thing to think there is no god, and I'm not gonna sort yeah. of say that that's stupid because they might be right, you know, um, and and so Matt Hunter. Presents that view consistently, while dealing with kind of crazy evangelical Christian serial killers, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so some of my Christian friends can come come along and say, "Man, this is this is really kind of anti-Christian and very pro-atheism." But it's just you know, well, he's this is who he is, you know. Um, but an example would be like so in the first book, Purged, he's on the trail of a Christian serial killer who believes the kindest way of evangelizing to the world is to um to find people and baptize them and get them sort of like fully clean for heaven and then murder them immediately afterwards because then right. that way he is you know he's saving people and he's not he's not allowing the risk of them losing their faith and maybe going to hell you know so it's it's basically just an extrapolation of like extreme evangelism it's obviously psychotic and I'm not a not a advising people do that but but it's it's a good idea for a killer and and so in that yes he's it, it's this idea of um of how christianity couldn't be warped you know particularly when it when it unhooks from jesus i think i suppose mm. with me being a christian I'm a, I'm a kind of jesus type of christian <laughs> for want of a better term and uh and in the minute when religion unhooks from its founder which is you know jesus i think you're in trouble mm. and uh the killer's in these books and some of the, and, and Jack Chick, you could almost say, I'm not claiming these people aren't Christians. I, it's not my place to say that. I'm just saying um, Jesus had a lot of problems with the established religious groups. Mm. And um, you tend to find that the people he criticizes are not sinners as it were. It's um it's religious people who um, are obsessed with the kind of the letter of the law um and not the spirit of the law and jesus comes along and starts messing around with it and starts going well i'm healing this guy on the sabbath and you know doing doing so so many blasphemous things subversive things that ends up getting them crucified uh and so yeah I, I don't see any problem with um with having books in which books that challenge the overly literal and um pharisaical approach which is forget about the human Let's just murder those people, <laughs> mm. um, and that will get them to heaven. Whereas I think Jesus will come along and say, "What are you doing? Let that post person up out of the bath." But yeah, these things do happen. Um, and weirdly enough, right when Purged came out, about seven or eight months later, someone sent me a clipping from somebody uh, from a newspaper in America, right. where a man had decided that he wanted his family to go to heaven, and he had um, he tried to drown them all in the bath. Yes. And, and this person had sent a message to me saying like, are you worried that this person read your book and did this? And I'm like, whoa, don't go there. <laughs> um, and I, I don't think that's the case, but it's just, it's indicative of the fact that there are, there are people out there who are, they have such a worldview that is ironically labeled as religious, but does not value human beings. And that to me is, uh, is dangerous.
1: It sounds to me, Peter, like you found a great deal of humanity in horror.
0: Yes, I, I think I have. Um, and for some people, they find that peculiar. But I'd go back to what we talked about at the beginning, that idea mm-hmm. of kind of nostalgia. The the sense of going back to a purer version of yourself, a self that wasn't I, want to, I don't want to say polluted because I don't have this idea like, you know, you're innocent when you're a kid and you suddenly get poisoned by the world. I think we remain the same person, just different kind of, we have different experiences in some ways. Mm-hmm. But there is something powerful about going back to that, those things that made you first feel alive. And it's often in your formative years. And for me, it was horror films and spooky stories And so I'm not, I'm not surprised that when I'm stressed or if I'm feeling sad, I may find myself turning to horror and particularly to old horror, you know, to things from the era. Um, uh, and, and I think that's normal and and that's why people I think love superheroes, you know, or, um, love star Wars, particularly star Wars has got such a, a strong following. You could almost call it religious. But I think something quite complex, quite complex is going on. People are going back uh, to a pre-stress time. Um, and why not? <laughs> you know, to draw on the, the power of yourself when you were younger. Yeah. Um, I like that. So, and and I, just, I think people do it. And I do it with horror.
1: Thank you, Peter. That's brilliant. Just to finish off, how can we find out more about Creepy Cove and the rest of your work?
0: Ah, well, you can, um, you can look at, uh, creepycove.com and you can find access to the show there. Um, the, the podcast is available on um, all the normal podcast services, Spotify, you know, um, Apple podcasts and Amazon podcasts and whatnot. But yeah, if you go to creepycove.com, you can find out there. And also if you're interested in the Patreon, which has got a whole bunch of extra stuff, including a weekly podcast from me called the Peter Laws podcast, imaginatively, um, And then you can go to Patreon.com forward slash Creepy Cove. And in that show, I explore strange news and bizarre um, happenings from around the world. Um, but I also have a section called Holy Moly, which explores some of the creepy and bizarre stuff that's going on in the Christian church right now. <laughs> and then sharing like personal stuff and film reviews and stuff. So yeah, CreepyCove.com or PeterLaws.co.uk. You can find more about me there
1: great i'll stick all that in the show notes i think i might stick a link to the dark dungeons tract as well
0: oh yes good idea
1: (laughs) okay peter thanks so so much for your time any last thoughts or words
0: only an encouragement to um to your listeners to not underestimate the power of these fictional worlds and to not just see them i think as a oh that's an extra little thing i do but it's not that important it's kind of a trivial add-on to my life when i really should be you know, putting the bins out or I really should be doing this work. Um, I I think I'd encourage people to say, uh, to to think a bit harder about it and to realize that these things can be more life-giving than you think and escapism is important. And so not to push it to the side, um, but to see it as a a part of your mental, spiritual health, uh, as well as just plain fun.
1: (laughs) Great stuff. Thank you so, so much, Peter. Peter Laws. I uh, wish you
0: well. And you. Thank you, Shay.
1: I hope you enjoyed this episode of Roleplay Rescue. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll hop online and check out Peter's own podcast at creepycove.com. There's a growing community of like minded horror enthusiasts waiting at that lonely fishing village. Big thanks once again to Peter Laws for willingly crossing the potosphere and doing the interview. It was a great chat, and I enjoyed having a frank discussion about the power of the macabre. Thank you. Don't forget, because we are an anchor podcast, you can drop me a voice message if you have any comments or questions. Your contributions really do make this a better podcast. And if you've enjoyed listening to Peter, please consider sharing the episode on social media to help promote both Roleplay Rescue and the Creepy Cove Community Church. And on that note, I'll bid you adieu. I'm Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. I'll catch you again on the flip side. Game on.